Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Trevor. And together, we're We're Occasionally Interesting, interesting. the podcast where a couple travels the world interviewing the most interesting people they meet along the way. Sometimes it will be sweet, often entertaining, rarely conservative, frequently informative, occasionally occasionally interesting. Occasionally interesting, occasionally interesting. I'm currently reading uh, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Gabor Mate. It's, it's, it's depressing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like a lot of this is, you know, it's such a... Uh, well, you know what? It doesn't need to be. You know, it bloody doesn't need to be. That's what's something that... Because I've just finished my book. It's, it's, it's about a month away from print. Is this that Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's completely accidental. Mm-hmm. no... No real plan. If you'd asked me the day before, do you think you'll ever write a book? I would have said maybe next decade, if you're lucky. But it, it just some an event happened that angered me, and, and I tend to when I get angry, passionately angry about something, I tend to like take it out on a keyboard. Mm. And so I started taking it out on a keyboard, and I just didn't stop. I did a Forrest Gump. <laughs> I, I basically just kept going for days, eighteen <clears throat> days to be honest. Wow. And at the end of 18 days, I kind of looked and went, holy shit, I've just written a book. Uh, and amazing. I, yeah, and, and it, was just, it was just a passion-fed thing. And, and as I sort of kind of got over, the death of a, a girl that I knew from alcoholism, only young Ianus, uh, in Australia, you know, happening around us as, as, as per, you know, it's brushed under the carpet. People aren't talking about it. Mm-hmm. You know, you die of a normal baby. You don't die of... Of alcoholism, right? And uh, and then from there it just kind of led back to where I was in the beginning. And in the end, I sort of suddenly stopped and went, "Wow!" Because I literally wrote, and then I met me, and then I thought, oh, "I've just written eighty thousand words." Wow! And I sent it off to people that I knew really well, who I could trust, very very good opinion, being uh, an opinion of taken from not just knowing me but how you'd read it from a reader's point of view and I you know, just said you know green light and, you know you've got to get it published or self-published and so I did you know and what was the initial catalyst for you wanting to write this well I didn't want to write it but it wrote itself <laughs> <laughs> um, the catalyst was a, a girl that was here in treatment in Thailand in August last year, she arrived, and I had about four other clients in, in rehab at the same time, and I was watching her, and I thought, oh my God, you are so close, you, you, you're one drink away from death if you return to it, and I, I because she, pres- she presented with um, the bloated stomach, yellow eyes, so she, she oh. had a steep place in her liver, I was to find out, because I got to know her. And every her entire presentation is was just. Are you going? Yeah. Oh, yep. good. Okay. <laughs> her entire presentation was just, you know, she's on death's door. And so I, I got, I did get to know her while she was in treatment, and I sort of, you know, because I was just coming and going, I'd bring her some jandals that she left behind at home and things like this. And over the period of time, she left rehab and, and got a condo here in Chiang Mai. 
within tent of staying on for six months a year in Thailand and having a recovery period here before returning home to Australia. Uh, and I just watched and just went, it's not going to happen. I can just see it. And within about a month, I think, of her being out of treatment, she's drinking again. She's a diabetic, alcohol-induced diabetes. Oh, jeez. She had everything going against her. Right. But she had, uh, there was a, there was a, a, a slight hope if she just didn't return to alcohol. And in the end of December, her mother flew over from Australia and picked her up from hospital. And we had dinner with her on the last night that they were all here, and, and then she flew home to Australia. And, um, and then it was just a waiting game. And, and only 7th of September, I got a phone call from mutual friends who said she's just been moved to a hospice. I'd seen a photo mm. of her on Facebook, you know, been Facebook friends a couple of weeks earlier, and I mean, that's it, counting the days now. And it just made me angry, you know? It just made me, it is such a senseless loss of life. Yeah. And, and this is how serious addiction is. Um, yeah. I understand America because I watch a lot of stuff coming out of America because it feeds through to New Zealand slowly. You, you'll get things like um, you know all your all your um, your drugs and everything. Fentanyl. It's beginning to creep into New Zealand. Oh wow! Really? Oh yeah. I thought New Zealand had like a bit of a isolated. Situation. Huh? We uh, we basically from Mexico, then imported methamphetamine into New Zealand as the second highest in the world. Yeah. So that's what yeah that's what we had you heard. We found our podcast. Do you know him? I know the name. He's the Kiwi who created uh, the legal highs social tonics in New oh, Zealand. Oh yes, I do. I do know who you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That was a very interesting conversation. I'd seen a Vice episode with him uh, years and years ago, and then he wound up being our tent neighbor at a festival here. Wow. So I really, I, I like, you know, I, I, his his philosophy definitely resonates with me in a certain way, um, and then to hear him tell his story was very interesting. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it, the, the way that he tells the story is that he there's a huge meth problem in New Zealand, yeah. Um, from my understanding, largely because a lot of other drugs don't necessarily make it there as readily. So, like cocaine or like, like MDMA, since it's such a sort of more remote island, it doesn't get as much. So, methamphetamine's just in abundance. And his, you know, a lot of his friends were doing it. And then he sort of discovered this pharmaceutical that was sort of out of use that gave you sort of energy and kind of a wicked hangover. And he realized that as he was selling this, his friends were getting off of meth in favor of this. And he was like, hmm, well, this is interesting. And then invested in scientists and laboratories to come up with alternatives to other drugs that with, with sort of an accident on safe use of, you know, methamphetamines, neurotoxic. And, you know, if you can do that, do say a legal derivative of MDMA to have similar effects, but not the horrible, addictive... You know, as addictive, life ruining effects. Then that's at least a step in the right direction. Um, debatable, uh, but I, I think that uh, it's certainly an interesting topic of discussion. It, it, it is an interesting topic, and uh, look, at the end of the day, let's be realistic about what a substance is. It doesn't matter what you're taking, how much you're taking of it. It's how it's affecting you. And it's why are you taking it to begin with anyway? Why aren't you smelling the flowers? 
why do you need to to be self-medicating? You know, so it doesn't matter what it is. You can't swap you can't swap one substance for another and it be to be better because it's still can I swear? Because I always swear. Yeah, yeah, please. Sorry, that's fucking with your brain, big time. You know, if it's a substance, um, and, and your your clarity and, and, and you know your natural ability to produce dopamine and and all of these things are all so mixed up when you you know when you start using a substance and then start relying on a substance. You know, the, the, the thing is with the most under, misunderstood thing about addiction is. As, as it is illness, you know, it's a chemically addicted illness to begin with, as well as it's a psychologically addictive illness. You know, like we talk about dopamine, you know, it, it, it gets so mucked up uh, with the release of having to be, you know, released from, from a substance rather than being naturally released. And, and so, what, why, why are we seeking it? Why are we not naturally getting a high from life? Why is our brains chemically not? You know, hitting all the right places. Why are our memories, you know, doing what they're doing? Why? The, the big question is why. And we're talking about the doctor. It's exactly what he says. Is why? Um, the misunderstood part is once you cross over that threshold and enter chemically addicted um, to a substance, as as well as neurologically addicted to a substance, you're in trouble. Uh, and no matter what you're using, you're, you're in trouble. I agree. I'm sort of like a, a a dual mindset about that. Like I think that uh, that historically we've used substances in one form or another for you know s- since prehistory, uh, and that they're they're a very integral part of our our story as humans and. You know, there, and there's two kind of ways to have the conversation. Certainly, when you're speaking about addiction, it's pretty much if you're using a chemical to dampen your life experience because you're not willing to tolerate or deal with certain things or are unable to. Um, that's you know, hands down, not good. Needs to be fixed. Needs to be addressed. But I also sort of believe that there is the potential. And I'm not devoted to this, so don't get me wrong, but that there's the potential to use uh, what Matt Bowden would call social tonics sort of responsibly. It's like, I think that alcohol is one of the worst drugs in the world. Uh, It's the most destructive, statistically, because it's the most widely used. Like, it's not necessarily worse than methamphetamines, but it certainly causes the most deaths and illnesses. but I think that they're, they're you know, we're, because we're social beings and because this has been such a, a fundamental part of the human experience of getting together, using a substance, yeah. and creating this sort of ex- joint experience that's, that's so powerful that I don't, I don't necessarily write that off as a complete negative. Although I have seen, I have seen exactly where it goes... And that's a really scary thing to kind of balance. Of like, it can have ter- terrible, terrible effects. Uh, and it's one of the really interesting things, to like hearing Gabor Mate talk about it. Uh, one of the things that like, he mentioned was during the Vietnam War, when a lot of soldiers went over to Vietnam and they were using heroin. The majority of them that came back were able to get off of heroin, you know, except for the you know five percent that 
probably were going to be heroin addicts anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not necessarily the substances that are causing the problem. At, at least this is a hypothesis. Yes. It's not necessarily even my hypothesis. But it's, it's an inability to deal with trauma that... And, and you, you're desperate for an escape, and that escape is coming at such a tremendous price. Totally agree with you, hundred percent. You know, any substance use responsibility in small amounts, and for the for the right reasons, is a wonderful substance. So, not against alcohol, you know, and I'm not against weed, and I'm seriously against methamphetamine because it's the biggest fucked up drug in this world, as far as I'm concerned. Something that eats your teeth first. What's it doing to your brain? Um, but um, Use responsibility. Responsibility. Use with responsibility. That those things are all fine, and they heighten. You go back to the cavemen; they used to eat berries, you know, and things like this. You know, there was there, we as humans seek things to get a higher uh, sense of joy. You know, outside of, of of what we naturally can find. You know, that's why we seek adrenaline and, and seek jumping out of planes and things like that. So I have no problem whatsoever with substances used uh, for for, the, for its purpose, um, and, and to move away from addiction. You know, really, for, for me personally, I, I was using a substance because of extreme anxiety. I didn't want to be an alcoholic. I didn't go seeking to be an alcoholic. You know, I was a professional woman in my thirties with five children when alcoholism, you know, started to seep into my life. Or alcohol reliance started to seep into my life, and all I was simply doing was just, God, it's save time. Thank fuck, it's four o'clock in the afternoon because Sav is going to save my day, Savion Blanc, and it was a release of anxiety. Why did I not? You know, people around me. It's not their fault, but I mean, I, I didn't know how to ask. I didn't know how to say. I can't handle being a casting director in the film industry, um, which was literally a full-time job. I was raising five children. Um, I was, you know, had nightly accommodation that we built on their property. Um, and I was just being a superwoman, which I actually don't have the, the gene pool to be a superwoman. You know, it was impossible for me to be doing what I was doing. And my anxiety grew. And the only way, only way to... to to soften the anxiety and make the day okay was to have a bottle of wine. And then addiction crept in. Then the more wine I drank, of course, it was that's a big fat glass of anxiety to me. And, and depression, even though I've never suffered depression, I appreciate completely those that do, but I, I suffered suppression. I was suppressed all the time. And so alcohol just fixed it. Sav fixed everything. You know, it didn't matter that that the laundry was just, you couldn't move into the door because, you know, I'd grab a bottle of sand and go to the laundry. Mm-hmm. You know, it didn't matter that, um, you know, I had, you know, a function to do in the weekend and cast a job for a butter commercial and, you know, three chickens in the oven because I had save in my head. And I was unaware of, of the connection between me just feeding my numbing me, numbing my system and quietening my system with a substance I didn't know the connection between that and addiction until it was too late yeah. and so no, it's not the substance it's the reason why you're needing the substance to be with that needs to be so clearly addressed and, and that's going back to that, that kind of therapy now that I'm beginning to 
hear a bit more about is opening the mind to understand what is the trauma that needs to be addressed, you know. It sort of reminds me how I look at, like, at, at crime. Like, crime happens not because somebody is a criminal. Crime happens because of an, a necessity yes. and an opportunity. Yeah. And when you look at it like, oh, that's just a bad person doing a bad thing, that completely, like, you, you just don't see the whole picture of, like, this was, this was a choice, this was a tool that somebody was using because they were suffering, and this was the only way that they were knew of or had available to them mm-hmm. to, to help them. Mm-hmm. So it starts off because it, it does help at first mm. you know you're anxious and it will make you not anxious mm, mm. until it starts making you way more yeah, anxious that's right, that's right. you know that, that's, a, that's just such a sad thing about you know look, looking back at Kat you know the sad thing about her is I mean she's not a bad person she didn't ask to die of alcoholism she was an ER nurse she was the head of her department mm. she's caring loving person but you know there was events and traumas that happened in her life that she wasn't able to overcome you know, and psychologically not being able to move away from those traumas, and so she she numbed her mind, and so it became a necessity. You know, and, and people often often associate this to your social, economical, demographic background. You know, and all the people I deal with come majority of them, and I do a lot of community work as well. But the majority of people I deal with are judges and, and lawyers and nurses and doctors. Wow. Oh yeah, that's that have to, have gone under the radar for so long that pretty much on death's door when they come to me, because they think they can fix it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a higher end of what you call your financial scale, I suppose. Are the ones that die because they're not caught in the system. They're not robbing the alcohol store to get their alcohol. They're not having to break into the neighbours to get money for meth or fentanyl or whatever, coke, whatever it is, they don't get caught in the system early enough. They go under the system all the way to when the liver's shutting down. Mm-hmm. You know, or the job's gone or they've been laid off from the police force or all of these things. You know, they those are the people that I deal with. Um, yeah, so seriously, it, it is, it, my biggest thing is, you know, I don't give a shit what you drink how much you drink of it, what you put up your nose, what you bang in your arm, what I care about is why. What what broke in you that got you here? And once I know that, let's work out the best place to send you to, the best condition that deals with... You know, of course in rehab they don't go too deep into... The, the, their job in rehab is to stabilise you and to let you... To, along with me, you know... Because um, that is what that I was going to ask you. I, I'm, I'm not too familiar with uh, like the rehab system in other countries. I'm I'm mildly familiar with the rehab system in America, and I have qualms. <laughs> um, you know, on one hand, I think that it, it is a necessity, and it's, it's it's kind of the best thing that we have at the moment, um, but. It does appear. I mean, the, the financial aspect of it, I find uh, troubling. Uh, you know, it costs thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars 
uh, to have somebody in rehab for 28 days. Holy shit, that's yeah. a lot of money. <laughs> it's, a, it's an absurd <laughs> amount of money. For American dollars, wow. That's it's, it's absolutely, mm, it's, wow. so, so there's this huge financial incentive and, and there's really kind of terrible outcomes that come from this. But on the other flip side of that, it's like, especially if you have insurance, it's covered mostly. So, you know, yeah, generally, yeah. but that, you know, that burns the insurance companies. Mm -hmm. But it really becomes this business and it seems, I mean, it, it seems like the recovery rates are abysmal. Like it doesn't, it doesn't work. And we're paying so much money to have a system that's got like a, you know, at what, at best a 10% success rate? I'm not actually sure about the exact statistics, but from my understanding, it's pretty low. Yeah, so I, I have a definite, my, <clears throat> when I got sober, when I chose sobriety, um, which is another whole long story into that, but when I finally chose life over the bottle, uh, I was near dead. And I, I went into a treatment centre that I paid 25000 for. Now I'll never forget the woman's words because it was a whole situation of me actually getting there to begin with. I was literally a walking head because my body had disappeared. But because of alcoholism, I, my face was the size of a balloon. Mm. But, you know, and I, 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 was, I, had, I had reached a point the day before I entered treatment of nothingness. I can truly tell you what nothingness feels like. And, and it was it was a horrendous a horrendous space in my life. But my eldest son, who I'd raised on my own really from a young age, once his dad had kind of got sick and had to leave the country, um, he'd phoned me and, and said, you know, Mum, you know, I, I, I love you, you know, so dearly. Um, and, you know, I don't know what else I can do anymore but this is too great for me and I never want you to phone me again and so that still gets me now and that's seven years ago and I hung the phone up knowing that I couldn't find him anymore it was in Australia heading to Thailand and I know that I could not have phoned him because he, he was going to change his number mm. and you know at 29 years old he was telling his mother that that was it that it was too much for him now to cope anymore. And so, out of the blue, universe, whatever, maybe people knew that this was going to happen, but it aligned, and this woman called me and said, um, a very good friend of mine actually called me and said, I found a place. You've got to phone them, though. Uh, but believe me, this is my now my fourth rehab, I'm going about to attempt, you know. Um, but you've got to phone them, and so I did. And, and I, what, the only, pretty much the only thing I said to Michelle who later became my boss, because it's where I ended up working, but I right. said to her, how much? And she goes, 25000 New Zealand dollars. So around fifteen, sixteen thousand 16000 American. And I said, oh, shit. And she goes, well, how much do you think your funeral's going to cost? Mm. And mm. I thought, well, that shut me up, because I know, <laughs> you know, that's, that's due in about two weeks' time, is, you know, looking at funeral costs. And so... Um, I entered that, re that rehab, and, and it was a brilliant system. Uh, how I know what works is follow-up. The rehab itself is purely to stabilise. It's to get you well, medically speaking, because you've put your body through so much physical trauma of malnutrition, whatever drugs you're taking have stripped 
and stuck to your body like glue or organs that got mess shit stuck to them and alcohol was stripped you know women you know urine infections and and you know your, your stomach's lining is knackered because of the acidity my teeth had all gone mm. I had to get my teeth rebuilt because I'm not only banging the bottle against them but vomiting all the time mm. from from alcohol um what they did there, I've followed ever since, is I do aftercare. You get the foundation and you get the worth. You, you find hope in these places. That, you know, In the 28 days, I'm going to gain hope. I've, I've found hope. I've met her, but is she going to stick with me? Um, and you leave at 28 days and you go home. Well, the worst thing that could possibly happen is you're just going to return to what shit you've just come from what do you expect is going to happen? Nothing changes. Nothing's going to change. And um, so the aftercare program, I stayed in Auckland, and I went every day to their one-hour aftercare program that they had. So I stayed kind of as an outpatient and stayed in a sober living house that if I looked like I had a glass of wine, I was gone and my $2,000 bond with it. Mm. So here I am nearly in my 50s, you know, kind of, but still living my own free life. But but I chose to go to aftercare every day. I chose to hear people that were three or four or five months ahead of me speaking about they've just suddenly found the beauty in little things. You know, saying, oh, fuck is that? But anyway, you know, <laughs> you know seriously, it was, couldn't, I couldn't fathom what they were talking about. And then eventually, um, you know, time went on and, and, and I got more and more faith in myself and I started to forgive myself firstly for, for, for what I'd done you know, and forgive, you know, understand, validate that you know, there'd been major trauma in my life that had never been dealt with and I then started to seek help for that but the baseline was getting rid of the relying on the substance, so that's what a good treatment centre is for they can't fix and they shouldn't touch Things like childhood sexual abuse in the treatment centre, you have to have a really good, solid foundation of of worth and uh, and self belief built within you first before you start touching trauma. Mm-hmm. Which you, you you'd understand this, you know, um, if you've if you've been you know worked in the field of psychiatric. It's um, so really their job is to not doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that they're serving you five-star meals every day and you've got, you know, hundreds of thousands, million Egyptian cotton sheets. You really just have a, a really good, stable environment that is there to prepare you for what is coming um, after the 28 days. So I don't believe people should be making money out of rehabs, no. And, and a good rehab would not make money. They would get by and they would be employing really good staff. But they'd be providing... You know, a, 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 an income maybe for the owners, but you wouldn't, you shouldn't get rich. I'm most certainly not rich from doing what I've been doing the last number of years. Yeah, I agree. I, I think I think that's spot on. Um, you know, and it's it's really interesting. Like one of the things that is kind of a side note. Um, like you know, I had a friend who who was like flown across the country. He was bought a wardrobe. He was given a cell phone. Uh, so that he could stay for a month in this rehab. Then he got out and was put in a recovery home. It was a beautiful recovery home in California with pool. Like, and it was like, and he was getting paid to do this. And then, then they convinced him to. They were going to give him five thousand dollars to get a, a, a vivid draw shot. 
don't know, I might be misquoting the name like that. What opiate, was the shot? opiate blocker. Oh, it's gosh. like a long-lasting opiate blocker. But they paid him five thousand dollars to do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and it was just like, there's something, there's something wrong here. I'm not sure what exactly it is because on one hand, he's getting help, right? Like, I can't be that mad about it. Like, it's a pretty sweet deal, especially for somebody who you know, you know, spent all his money on drugs. Like, he's, you know, he doesn't have like very many options or opportunities. It's a really attractive offer. Like, you get to go to a facility, a nice facility with nice, you know, theoretically nice aftercare, and mm. and then get you know these benefits. But, you know, he's, he's still using today. Uh, like, and it's like, I'm torn between it. Because it's like, it seems, it's like, at what point, what do I, like, what do I care? If, 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 if it's a little sketchy in terms of the finances and they're screwing over the, the insurance company and he, he could have taken advantage of the help that he was being given. Yeah, when did he step forward and do his bit? When did, when did he have to open up? When did he have to get raw? I don't think he ever did. No. I think if he did, he probably would be in a very different circumstance. Yeah. Um, you know, and then he moved back to where he was from. You yeah. know, and I tried to convince him very strongly <laughs> to not do anything but yeah. that. But you know, but how how do you do? You think that there's something that that can help people come to the realization that you know, how do you give somebody that hope, that optimism, that they're worth putting that effort in, and that effort will pay off? I feel like that's such a rare thing that happens, or at least sustained. It's for people to find hope, mm-hmm. and then to invest in themselves, to go every day to that outpatient afterwards, or to go, you know, make ninety or ninety or whatever, whatever aftercare it is. Well, I think you just have to be totally and utterly tired of, of being tired of doing what you're doing. Sick and tired and of being you, sick and you, tired. You have to. I actually thought I came up with that line. I was quite <laughs> shocked when I started hearing it elsewhere. I thought, you know, fuck, I'm sorry, tired of being tired. I think the human mind has uh, a natural ability to want to survive. You know, we've got things in us, our soul, our, I call it the bones of me, it's a mixture of my soul and my heart and my head, all being intertwined into one and it becomes the bones of me. The bones of me didn't want to be dying from alcoholism. The bones of me didn't want to be living this life that I've now established for myself. You know, nobody wants to be there. They just don't know how to get out. Mm-hmm. You know, so in regards, I think hope is something that you 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 have, and you attempt to you attempt to reach out. You look, you, and you have, you can make all the excuses in the world, which is what you know people like me are really good at doing used to be, make an excuse that, you know, you can step into AA or step into NA, and at least that's a door where people understand you, and from within that door, they've got this whole network of saying, well, I heard of this place, it doesn't cost that much, or this is, you can get this on your, and so, you can keep moving towards it if you want to, if you want to, that is, that's the foundation, you have to want it, and you have to believe, you don't have to hope, I don't, I don't think at that stage you have to hope. I think you just have to believe that it could be possible, and that's all that matters. Hope comes later, hmm. I believe. For me personally, hope arrived on day 18. I didn't have any hope when I went to. I just didn't want my children to have an empty chair at the most important events of their lives, you know. And that still, hmm. again, that still gets to me when I even think about it, because, you know, that's what it was become, that's what it had become. 
I was just going to be a sad, awful memory when my mother died of alcoholism. I wasn't worth it. So it wasn't hope that I could change, and it, it wasn't worth that I had in myself, or even belief. It was my the worth they had. What was worth it was worth more for me to do this for them because I I needed to try one more time for them. And, and, and people say it's got to be for you, and yes, it does. But it doesn't matter what the reason is; it's going to get you into that final door. It's just for me, it was like I. I my children are worth more than this and so I'll go day 18 we'd just done a session in, in class and, and it was about looking in the mirror and I hadn't looked in the mirror for months and, and, and she, the clinician was making me look in the mirror and I, I turned around and looked at myself and I who the fuck is that person and I honestly did not recognise who was looking back at me and uh, I went out of the room and really got upset. And, and my upset is hiding away and nobody, nobody able to see it. I never really wanted to express emotion or perceive it. Not to be seen to be weak, I just wasn't very good at being comforted when I was upset. And, and I sort of went back into my room and I sat there and I thought, there's, you know, I looked in the mirror again and said, there's got to be more to you than this being the end of your story, Denise. You know, you've got to find one thing that you can believe in to to believe that you can get you can get through this. That you don't have to be, you know, this for, this can't be your life. And and just with that, I, I sort of felt a tingling of like, you know, if I just if I just hold this thought that for today I'm not going to drink, then. You know, and maybe maybe in twenty you no know, by twenty eight days I of course I'm, I mean in rehab I'm not gonna drink. But maybe on twenty nine day twenty nine I can have a really nice latte. So I found little tiny rewards that I could give myself and it was just all sectioned into sometimes a blink at a time. But it was just tiny, 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 tiny steps. But always in the back of my mind going, You can't addiction can't win, alcoholism can't win. I have to I have to beat this. And in time, you know, just so many beautiful things start gathering up that you, that you do eventually find your own really true hope and your belief and your self-worth all starts returning because naturally we're made to survive mm. um, there's not one person out there that can't say that they haven't or, or can say that there's no help available because you walk into an AA meeting and there's help and I'm not a big AA you know person I was going to ask um. <laughs> Why not? Right. Um, because I don't believe, and you know, this is this is my thoughts, this is my opinion, uh, but I stand by them. I think they're a really good place for connect people that need connection. But I don't believe somebody should be taken through a twelve-step program by somebody who is not qualified. And that's it in a nutshell. There's a lot of serious things in that twelve-step, and and especially for people who've suffered abuse. Um, you know, they, they come across one of the steps and then it's quite traumatising. Now, who are you? What are your qualifications to be tapping into somebody's trauma, into somebody's grief, uh, and, and opening that up when you don't know how to close it? You know, you can open a can of worms only if you're in a, a very secure environment with a very good professional psychi- psychologist, psychiatrist, whatever, therapist. Um, I don't like 
I hate, I should say, the soapbox. I, I can't stand it. You go in there and all you're constantly hearing, and I've, I've been, I've, I've done AA, so all you're constantly hearing is people's war stories. Hmm. You know, the sob stories about what we've all bloody done. You know, why do I have to be reminded of what I've done? I want to be looking for what I'm going to be. We've all done the same thing, all in our unique individual ways, but why can't we sit there and hear of people that are year two, five years clean, of what their life has become because they chose life over addiction? Instead, we're taken back and we just heard war stories. And I tried this in AA. I used to go, when I was working in the rehab, I was, you know, often I was doing the, the... Meetings to drive people around to different meetings, and if that was an AA group that didn't know me, they'd make the mistake of asking me, you know, a question or ask me to speak. As they got to know me, they didn't ask me to speak anymore. Yeah. Really, it's, it's how it happened. I made a mistake in one of them, and I did it on purpose. But I just got annoyed by the stage because what what I used to say is go, you know, look, this is what I found in sobriety. This is this is a gift of sobriety. You know, I can look at a lemon tree now and be fascinated at the colours of a lemon tree and, and so the beauty and the small things have grown with me as I stuck it out over those numerous months and years of, of, of going and moving and further and further away from a bottle. They didn't like that. This particular group came out and said, you know, so Denise, why did you come to AA? And I said, well, where else am I going to find a new ex-husband? <laughs> you know, seriously, it, it it just gets to the point that you there's sometimes you go in there and you hear brilliant stories, and I go, Amen. You know, that is that is wonderful. Somebody has talked, and and I can see it's helped somebody else. So for me personally, it doesn't work for me, but I will pull as quick as anything. Somebody I know who has a very small social group and is very lonely and very isolated. As quick as you say boo when we're back in New Zealand, I'm dragging them around all the AA or NA groups because I'm wanting them to connect with people. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to doing the STEP program, I, I leave it to the psychologists that we've now engaged with to do that, that particular trauma group. I think that's absolutely spot on. I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, especially like, and from my understanding, telling war stories is discouraged. Yes. But it happens, yeah. you know, especially for the cheap laughs. And, of course. And then there's like, you know, you get a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of alcoholics together, a whole bunch of egos together, yeah. and it just becomes this like, you know, really weird, like dynamic Humor. of like, yeah, and 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 also just like people trying to, you, know, you there's like there's like these one-liners that you hear, and it's Ooh. like it's like you're just repeating <laughs> this thing that you because you want to sound profound, and it's like. And in one sense, it's like, yeah, if, if that's the first time that you've heard that as a newcomer, it is going to be profound, and it can help you. But it's like, it's just, I don't know, there's something after, after like, a little bit of time, it was just like, this is, I'm done. And I completely agree. I mean, I think that if you're lucky and you get a good sponsor that's, you know, grounded, but I think yeah. that's rare. I think you'll be much better off with a professional that... You know, and and for the most part, I actually I, I like the philosophy of the twelve steps. Mm. Um, but I think you're right. I think that having somebody who isn't a year sober 
trying to guide, you know, just getting their life together, trying to guide you through this really intense growth process is probably pretty problematic in a lot of instances. But I agree. I mean, if, if it is it is the number one thing where somebody expresses a problem in that vulnerable state, it's, exactly, it's fleeting when somebody's like, hey, I think I really might need help. It's like, you got to get on it. And the easiest thing to do is, well, let's go to a meeting. Yeah. Know? So it's great yeah. that it's there, but... You know, and it's also one of the most one like like especially when I first started going, it was the only place that I'd ever seen such authentic vulnerability. Mm-hmm. That I mean, that was that was sort of intoxicating mm-hmm. in itself. Mm-hmm. I'm just hearing people. Yes. You know, when you hear those speakers, like the ones you mentioned, where yeah. it's just like, whoa. Yeah. That yeah. was yeah. a life changing experience yeah. I just heard. Yeah. And and you know, and it's worth it just for those. Yeah. yeah, I feel like I feel like yeah. in, in, in almost every meeting, there's at least one thing that's like, that's what I came here to hear. You yeah. know, that's and that's what I say to my clients is, you know, even if you, especially those that are very, I would say vulnerable, but they're just isolated and just need connection. Because I believe, I believe in love, and I believe in connection, and I believe that's what makes the world go around. I truly do. I think if somebody can be loved. And, 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 and with that connected, then anything's fixable. Mm-hmm. You know, that and, and throw belief in there as well. Let hope come later. But so people that are, don't have a lot of connection and don't have a lot of love in their lives, or, or it's yet to be reconstructed from the disaster of their addictions, you know, and their family members are yet to trust and all that kind of thing, AA is, is really good for it. But, you know, look, I, I can honestly say there's probably 10, ten, ten particular times I could think of, bring up straight away of, of being there and thinking, thank God I was here for this moment and, and that I was able to hear the story. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not an AA basher by any means, but you've got to go through a lot of meetings and a lot of, a lot of vanity and a lot of people's egos. Mm-hmm. You know, people have an ego, and they're like, well, I did it. It's like, yeah, mate, you're clenching your fists. You've done nothing. You're actually, you know, a dry drunk, and what you're doing is getting your kicks out of, you know, telling somebody that you're 395 days sober, while you're probably bloody hating life, but you're getting your kicks out of taking somebody through a 12-step who's got less days than you. I've seen people who are 50 days sober in a better place than what I've seen people 500 days sober. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just purely from, you know, this is not a competition. This is, this is about your unique, authentic life being re-established the way and in, in, in the direction that you want it to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And realising that, you know, that direction being authentic is, authentic. It's, 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 it's hard, you know. It's, 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 there's so many different... Agreements that are put on us. This is how we should be. This is what we should be, and we become so obscured and removed from ourselves. And then to, to sort, of, sort of all of a sudden, in a really short period of time, while you're detoxing from God knows what, to have to come to these realizations is like it's intense. It's 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 a very interesting experience to, to witness and be around. And it, it is, and, and you know, I believe meeting yourself is one of the greatest gifts we can ever give ourselves in this world. You know, we carry a thing in our brain. How many of us can actually name what those things are up there? You know, the hippocampus and everything, what does it do? You know, it's such a unique thing we carry on top of our heads. 
you know, this, our body itself is our first home, but this is a control panel, our minds, and we know so little about it. And so we know so little about ourselves. And, and addiction's clouded that amongst the fact that you've, you've, you've really fucked your life up big time, and you blame yourself, as does everybody else for it, especially if they just have no understanding of, of addiction. I tell you one thing, you know, that was again graced upon me, I feel, was coming home from Bangkok with a, a really close friend of mine, actually my lifetime friend, and she had had uh, about six months of chemotherapy for ovarian cancer, and then her and her husband, and in a small window of thinking things were going to be okay, they travelled all around Europe, and, and the universe paid out, and I happened to be flying out of Bangkok on the same flight as what they were home to New Zealand. And so Andy lived in Queenstown, I'd been travelling all around the, you know, Southeast Asia and Australia, New Zealand with work, and hadn't seen much of her while she'd been diagnosed. And we are on the plane talking, and she was tired. You know, you could see she, she was just naked, and she felt that she'd picked up a bug or something, and do I... And so we just sat quietly on the plane, travelling home, and she said, you know, I've been doing so much thinking, Denise, you know, I'm, I'm going to go home, and I'm going to spend time with me now. Mm-hmm. Like, I desperately need to spend time with me. Like, I can't look after others anymore. It's all, it's got to be about me now. And she said, and you know about this, Denise, because you've had to find, you've had to seek you. You've had to, because you live with you, you've had to seek peace and contentment and, and what makes you happy and what makes you sad and, and, and make it right for you. And she said, and, and things, I need to do that now. And she said, her, the difference between you and I is, I have, an, I have a disease that everybody runs to to help fix. You have a disease that everybody runs as further away as they possibly can to get away from it. And we have the same diseases because mine more than likely will kill me and yours almost killed you. And she, yeah, she died six months after that. So that was an absolute blessing. And I've told people, you know, Andy's words. Uh, And and another friend, you know, this has not been morbid, but it's, it's, it's really just stuff that I've held on to. Three months after... Three months prior to going into, into Capri Hospital into treatment, my best friend, one of my other good friends, godmother of one of my sons, was diagnosed, and she um, phoned me and said, "I have cancer. They've given me six months, and I'm not having any treatment." So what did I do? I made it all about me. I made the whole fucking thing about me. I got on the phone to everybody I knew. It was like, "Where Susan's dying." And, and just unbelievable. That was my that was my alcoholic self. That was my unwell self. Did that. The best thing that could have ever happened was I was sober when she died. I got sober by that stage. Three months after she was diagnosed, I went into treatment. And just before she died, I was in. I flew down to see her, and we were talk, sitting there in a very, very black humour way, talking about a party that she was about to have knowing that she only had about a month left, what I had to do at the party, and, and how, which is a funeral. Um, and I got all teared up. But Susan came out, a very Australian girl came out and said to me, Denise, I don't want you to make my death your fucking excuse to go back on again. You know, 
you didn't, you don't want to come back, you don't want to be with me, you don't want to go back to where you came from, you can only go forward, so don't make this a fucking excuse. Now I've told that, don't make anything an excuse, that's as simple as that. The clouds can move in the wrong direction, or the sun could come up two minutes later and you'd find an excuse to go and pick up. Don't make anything an excuse. No excuses. So I get on a tangent. Oh, that was beautiful. <laughs> yeah. It was beautiful because after that she she lost her voice and with Susan she lost her voice and I was eight and never able to speak to her again. Wow. And she left about a week later. Yeah. Very and she powerful left message her away. to leave you with. And mm. I have told that to so many people that I've been in treatment with. They're going, oh, but when I go home this is going to happen and that person's going to be doing that. Oh, fuck your excuses because yeah. that's all that is it's just excuses and then I'll tell them Susan's Susan's last words to me don't make my death your excuse to go back to where you came from because you just don't belong there simple as that I'm a lucky person I've had that in my life but everybody's got something just got to look for it yeah can't expect really it to, to come to you yeah you got to go out there looking. So, what is the uh, what is the rehab scene here in Thailand like? What's the cost of it? I guess is. One of so my the cost is not that expensive, obviously compared to um, what you're quoting. Um, it is around anything from uh, nine thousand, eight nine thousand US, through to about fifteen sixteen for a twenty eight day program. Okay. Yeah. Look, I would. I would have to say, it's not the rehab, it's not what they offer, it's who they've got running it, mm-hmm. it's who the, who the clinicians are. Your clinician is going to be your key, the person that you see twice a week or three times a week that's giving the therapy to you. That person who's going to, he's, he, that, that is going to be the person that gives you some hope and mm-hmm. can kind of, can validate you, uh, can listen to you, can hear you, but also direct you. So it doesn't matter what the rehab is, you want to carefully look into who the clinicians are. Um, and evidence-based, I think. I, I would. I don't ever take anybody into a rehab that I haven't sat my button for a week before myself, for at least a week. So all rehabs that I've ever taken people to around the world, I go in and act as, a, as an actual client. Mm-hmm. I don't stay there, um, and it's always checked with the clients that are there, but... I participate in the program. So evidence-based, um, scientific evidence-based programs. The Hayeswoodham program, you know, which Betty Ford program was, was a brilliant one that I did. Um, so rehabs in Thailand are brilliant, you know, because you come out here and you live in a naturally beautiful environment and it's warm and there's elephants and, you know, there's water and all the good nature things are here to offer you and and the price is cheaper you've just got to the aftercare plan is so much it's as important if not more than any other part of treatment is aftercare what you do next yeah I would also imagine the the journey behind coming to Thailand like leaving leaving where you are taking the the you know, tremendous action of flying a far away way 
uh, to go to the, and have this experience, I think would I think would enhance the the commitment. Uh, yeah, the commitment, the the dividing line. Like, okay, this is you know, I'm committed. Yeah, I, and I wonder. I wonder if that has an effect. For the for the clients that I brought over here, I would have to say yes, it does have an effect um, because I've been removed from all. Um, all areas of what's damaging them, what is what has been pushing them, or you know, influencing their their initial addiction to a substance or their initial use to a substance. You're taking, you're stopping the world and you're getting off by coming to Thailand. You really are. And so, I believe that. Yeah, I believe that has got to really plays a really really good part in it. But I just think it's got to be so carefully navigated. You know, as in, you know, I think you, with me, I bring my clients, I travel them here, uh, unless they're needing detox prior to coming. Um, but I travel them to Thailand. But then what will happen at the end of it is a family member comes in here too and, and sees that they haven't been at a holiday camp, sees that they've actually been in, you know, quite intense mind work, um, soul work, you know, for that period of time. Um, and then the family also have counselling and everything, and so together they go on, and then together they go on a pathway forward. Um, but a rehab is just four walls and a foundation, like we are as people. You know, we're a foundation with our four walls, which is a very Māori way of looking at, at um, addiction. Um, but you know, you have a good foundation, and you build your walls around that foundation, and, and that is how you how you grow is within your own home, which is you know your body and your soul. Um, rehab is four walls and a foundation, so it can be anywhere, as long as it's a really good program and a really good psychological based um, therapy team. You know. What happens, it's never happened, actually I lie, it has. What happens is people leave rehab and then they stay in the pretend, the pretend world. They stay on in Chiang Mai or Thailand or maybe trottle off to Cambodia or Vietnam and they stay in this world of peace, love and happiness and where's the bloody reality? Reality exists and eventually we've got to go home to it. Um, and, you know, maybe there's family at home, maybe there's a job at home. I don't say go back to that job or necessarily go back to the family, but you've got to go back to play your part in it again. You know, you, you can't... You, you have a means to make. You have, you know, things that you've got to fix. Mm-hmm. And so that, that is a bit of a one that people tend to not go home. They tend to just stay and live sober recovery in Thailand because it's cheap and you can and and you know and for some people it really works like that for a year of doing recovery like that but the, the longer you are away from avoiding issues back home the harder it's going to be to and, and the more smack in your face when you do get home yeah. yeah absolutely how did you start or can you describe what you are doing now and how did you start this how did you get into it so um, I, I call myself a navigator I own a company called I created a company called Seeking Solace, so that is, you know, times of great despair is solace, and, and you're seeking it. I worked for three years in the rehab that I went to, a year after I was, um, 
after I finished uh, treatment, I've been doing a lot of volunteer work, taking a lot of small group meetings, just keeping new clients coming in. Uh, they offered me a job, and so I did all my training. Um, I did a lot of trauma-informed care and, and things, really, really good training, understanding the more the mechanics of, of what addiction was about. A lot of intervention, and that, that was kind of what I became quite good at. I was like a, like a um, chamelon or something, just change colour. So I'd hear somebody's accent, New Zealand accent, and you, I could tell that from the deep south, or I could tell that they were Māori, you know, Pacific Island, um, so I'd blend into what that person was, kind of on a social scale. So I could do interventions, um, kind of worked with me. They closed. We just just got announced one day that we're closing after 17 years. Wow. 35 staff. Mm. So it was a hospital. It was a nursing hospital. It's actually, you know, detoxes were, were done in there, and it was a mental health hospital as well as addiction. So I kind of walked away and thought, what am I going to do? You know, I've come so far now. Um, what what is next for me? Where do I go to? And I I. I say that I've got a I've got a PhD in alcoholism, you know, um, that I worked really hard to get and, and destroyed a lot of shit in my life getting it. Um, but I have absolutely no other qualifications in my life. In 25 years in the film industry, you know, which I, it, it was I fell into that and taught myself everything I've done. I've taught myself, and so I didn't want to work in public rehabs because I don't believe in that system mm. at all. I think they are a complete waste of time people even going to them, to be honest, if you can get into one in New Zealand. Um, they've got about a 2% you know, success rate. Uh, so I just kind of went, shit, what do I do? Um, and one of the clinicians at work came up to me and, and said, um, you, can't, you can't stop doing what you're doing unless you have a gift. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a really humble person. Um, I, know, I know I can speak, but I'm. Somebody says oh, I'm really proud of you. I'll go purple. I, I feel, you know, I find that all a bit too hard to. So when when they said this, I, I kind of thought, oh, she's just saying it to be nice to me. And then I thought about it. I thought, you know, I do have a gift. How about I do it my way? And so it is unique. It's. I think it could be done in America, but it's certainly not done in Australia or New Zealand. Um, I, people come to me and I, I take that person and their family, everything about them, and, and I go, okay, how do we do this? You know, um, I find out all about, to myself I say, how do we do it? I never do to them. Mm-hmm. And I find out all about the person. I don't delve too much into their medical, uh, sorry, into their mental health because, again, I don't want to open that can of worms. But I, I try to get to understanding what's going to be best for them. And then I navigate them, and I just navigate all of it, you know, right down to booking their flights, travelling with them, booking their their um, medical insurance, you know, um, always keeping mum, dad, and the kids and, and the family at home. Oh, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll come with you. No, actually, you're part of the problem. You just don't know it. <laughs> so you just stay right here, and I, now they're going to come with me. And a, and a good example of that was a phone call from a dad who said, my daughter has been looking at rehabs um, and she's chosen one and I'm going to take her there but 
I understand you've been taking a lot of people to the three head for the last number of years, and I'd like to talk to you about it. And so I talk about opening up like so much more. And I'm I got off the phone and I was on my way to Queenstown, which is an hour and a half flight away. And I said, well, I'll call you back when I get land on the ground in Queenstown and talk to you about this, um, which I did. And he said, I'm oh, a daughter committed suicide and was actually successful she was revived four times and she's just come out of a coma she she hung herself in complete alcoholic psychosis she hung herself there's no memory of it and and thank god her ex-husband who she's not even close to had seen a text from her and we shit on married and just drove to her house not having any clue there was anything wrong with this girl didn't even know that she had a drinking problem so he told me this, and he said, but she, I'm going to take her, I've got it all sorted, and I'm going to take Lizzie to, uh, and I can use her name because she's in my book, and she's happily allows me to talk about her. It's a confidentiality that's completely public. Um, so I got off the plane and went, holy shit, this, there's going to be more to this than, than, than what's going to be happening with this family. So I just got right back on the plane the next morning and flew home. So when he called me again, he said, oh, if you're in Queenstown, when are you back? Because I'd like you to meet, Lizzie would like to meet you. And I'm like, yeah, I'm back. You know, and I met her a couple of hours later. But the father was controlling, and he was saying, I'll take her there, and I'll do this, and we'll sort this out. And Lizzie had nothing to say other than sit there and look at me. And, um, and she, you know, she'd been in private care after being in hospital for over a week in a coma. However... I got home that night and Lizzie's father phoned again and said, I don't know what's happened, but she wants you to take it. And that was it. Boom. Mm. You're out of the picture and now I'm gonna navigate every step of this every step of this process. But you're in charge of it. I'm just navigating it. So people I'm not following them in cotton wool. You know, you've got to take you've got to participate in this. But I'll just tell you where you you know, I'll tell you how you're gonna get there. You're going to pick it, and then I'm going to tell you what was the next plan and where you should be going, and you're going to pick it, and you're going to participate in all of these steps all the way through, well into well into a year, two years of sobriety. Mm. That's what I do, one person at a time. I think it's amazing. I mean, okay. even just seeing, at least in the States, how difficult it can be to, to try to navigate any aspect of, of this is... It's just mind-boggling. Like, I mean, it's hard to even find a rehab that has a bed, let alone a good one, a quality yeah, one. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, and and there's usually a pretty short window. If somebody's hit rock bottom That's before right. they're like, you know, so it's like an all hands on deck kind of situation. But if you don't know anything about it all, yeah. at all, it's like, yeah. it's like you know, trying to be a doctor with absolutely no experience. It's, it's like, what it's, do you do? Like, it's a minefield. Yeah, it really is. Because the person saw him. And the family is so well, because I mean, the family are just as sick as what the person that they're standing by is. You know, they've been on this roller coaster uh, of, of trauma themselves, which they didn't ask to participate in. You know, they're maybe enabling, you know, enabling, you know, to, to keep peace, or they've got sick as the other person who's got the addiction has got sick. Except the difference is, the person with the addiction is getting relief from it because they go into num-num land, whereas a mum, dad, you know, husband or wife don't. So to find a, a place to go 
and trust the place and then send them the money, which they all want. They want the money up front. So, you know, I have a num- I had a number. I mean, of course now this is this is this is sort of ground to a halt because international travel's out. Um, doesn't mean it's not gonna carry on. I'll just figure out another way. I'm but sure it's gotten to dire straits in the last six months, like people are out of work, people are not socializing. I can't even imagine what this has done to addiction. Huge. In all the countries that I, you know, probably what I follow on Google, so everything comes up, but uh, increase in mental health addiction in New Zealand has skyrocketed. Mm-hmm. And, and to the point that, you know, the... the even the well, our waiting lists, our waiting lists are about eight months long in New Zealand for public rehab, and the public rehab they're a waste of time because all they really are is telling you what addiction is. They're not treating you; they're treating addiction. It's a big difference. Public rehabs in uh, the states are basically just uh, they funnel you from detox to oh well, then now go next door to the methadone clinic. Yeah. Like, and it's yeah. like. Yeah, I have never even heard of public rehabs. I didn't know this was a thing. Yeah, I mean, we not call them the same exact thing, but they're, they're state-funded facilities that are very poor. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm, I'm generalizing here. I'm sure that there's some out there. Room. Yeah, I mean, a lot of them are, uh, like, uh, sometimes they double as, like, psychiatric hospitals. Yeah. Uh, so it's not necessarily just a rehab. Um, but, I mean, they're, you know... It was interesting, like like there's there's sort of um, we live in a suburb of Philadelphia, yeah. and Philadelphia's a major city, and there's sort of if you if you know what you're doing, there's ways to get people into better facilities yeah. because if you go into one district, they'll send you to this psychiatric portion that's like got really terrible terrible experiences. But if you go actually into the city, a lot of times the city ones are even better than some of the suburb ones. So you have to know where to go. And then, like, so especially somebody needs to be like three o two, like uh, involuntarily committed because they're, yeah, yeah, you, know, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there's 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 sort of ways to go about this that wind up placing them into better facilities, and it's 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 such a weird experience to have to like, okay, well, we need to go drive to here to call the cops to get them. To oh like, yeah, it's insane. Like, yeah. It's so bad. We we we're a tiny country. We're not number one. We're not covered by insurance, so you you, you either go to a public rehab or you're paying, and the people are mortgaging their house. And I use Michelle's line plenty of times. You'll sell that car outside to pay for this because you won't be needing it in a couple of months' time. You, know, you don't need to drive a car when you're six feet under or you're ash. You know, do what you need to do to get the money together to get to treatment. I don't charge a huge amount of money for what I do. I charge enough to get by. I, I charge enough to live comfortably on, but I have never got rich on it because I, it's, it's not my belief. You know, I, it's almost like, I'm not in the slightest bit religious. I have no religion, but I, I, I have a, a spiritual um, understanding that I've been gifted something that I don't need to benefit a lot out of. Financially, I just need to be able to survive on and be happy with, you know, and, and be able to give to my children and give to things. But that's it, you know. Um, New Zealand is just so far reaching when it comes to, like, I will tell people, um, like, 
detox is now no longer allowed in hospitals. Um, I could go into the politics of New Zealand and it's just a nightmare, so there's no point of, there's too much time wasted doing it. But I'll tell people to call the police and tell them that their person has, they just grabbed them and stopped them from jumping off the roof. Make up a big fat fucking lie so the police are going to get there with a mental health worker now. And the bigger the suicide ideation, the better treatment you're going to get. Because believe me, there's a scale that you're going to be ticked off. Oh, wow. The scale in regards to suicide. Your suicide ideation with planned. They're on the second floor rather than the fifth floor. Oh, true. It's sweet to God, it's how it works. We've got the highest suicide rate in our young men in the modern world. Really? New Zealand. That's shocking. That's shocking. Shocking. Why? Five million people. Five million people. Second highest methamphetamine uh, use uh, in the world per head of population, and the most and the highest suicide rate for wow. our young men, Maori men between the ages of eighteen and twenty-four, in the world. Who's number one? Do you know? Number one for meth, I think, is Australia. They call it ice oh, right. there. Right. Wow. Direct shipping line from Mexico through to. Norfolk Island area and then into all the coasts of Australia. So crazy. I know this because one of my clients just got picked up with a ton. Oh, shit. On a yacht. Oh, no. That's not good. He was one of my least... He'd been released from my books because he was not a success. His idea of, of, of going into recovery was who he could rip off Mm-hmm. who he could fool you get you get people like that and that's their that's their lot his lot now is a life imprisonment for bringing a ton of meat through from Mexico on a boat wow it's a shame it's a life wasted it's a sad 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 waste of life but imagine the lives he was about to waste I know yeah. I'm not very big on dealers not, not, not the, not the high end. Not the bringing, porting, you know, bringing it in through the oceans. I don't, you know, you don't have to go that far. Understand dealing, of course I do. You know, I don't judge them, but I do judge people sailing for a couple of months in the ocean with a ton of meat on board. You need time. That's just greedy. It's pretty bad. It's beyond greedy. I mean. It's so yeah, our, our system in New Zealand is really sad, and, and I advocate, you know, as much as I can for change. A lot of my book has got that, and it is. Uh, I don't go on about it. I'm not bleating about them, but I do make a very clear statement about the government and, and why, you know, how how could they just not? How can they keep pushing it back and not? Why are they not building big detox units? Do you have any uh, do you have any theories on to why that is? Um, I think that ignorant, really, of the the, the, the the degree of the disease of addiction. Oh, you think that's true? I mean, I find that hard to believe. I mean, at least, again, I don't know much about um, Australian politics, but, like, I mean, addiction in the United States is so bad that like, I think it was Indiana was the number one producer of uh, all-terrain vehicles. And after the Great Recession, they were starting to... Uh, sort of revamped the factories and started trying hiring more workers and they couldn't hire workers 
because every single person was failing drug tests. Yeah. And and it was an insurance liability. So they literally couldn't even like I mean every single every single person. I I think it is such a widespread issue that touches so many people. So for Congress or the government to be like to claim ignorance, I find I'm a little skeptical. I agree when it comes to America because it, your addiction uh, has been portrayed that you know the rate and the use of drugs and, um, and and everything for the last number of years has just skyrocketed. Opiates, opioids, everything is just all the programs that you watch. It's horrifying. Yeah, like everyone from our school is dead from heroin. It's crazy. Like always hearing just. Yeah. Kids in their twenties just dropping off. It's it's horrifying, you know. And, and first responders carrying the jabs to you know two, three, four times a day. They're reviving people. We don't have heroin that's doing that yet. We don't have the fentanyl that's coming in, but it's not doing it yet. But New Zealand is a little bit behind the behind the eight ball in recognizing that the organ failures and that the heart attacks and you know, the, the alcohol-induced diabetes and all this is related directly to alcohol. It's in their face. They just won't do anything about it. What they've just done in the last year, which was the biggest joke in history, was they spent, they spent a year sending this panel of people around New Zealand interviewing all aspects of addiction, AOD community, you know, the, either the people in treatment or the people like me that work in it and everything else. And then at the end of it, they came up and went, gosh... We're now going to call it mental health slash addiction because we now understand that it's a mental health issue. It's like, no, shit. <laughs> Seriously? That was the big revelation? That was, that's what you <laughs> came we'll up with this. after what? You know, that, oh, it's a mental health. Oh, mental health and addiction go hand in hand. Yeah, yeah, John, it does. You know, it's, uh, and, and that's as far as what we've got. But in, 19, in 2012, I was sectioned voluntarily because my father called me and said, for the love of God, Denise, which he doesn't even believe in, but for the love of God, if, be, if you would say yes to this, all the birthdays, Christmases and Father's Day for the rest of my life would mean, would mean everything if you just go to court tomorrow and say yes. And I'm like, pissed as a fart. Sure, Dad. Like, any time my father's going to ask me to jump, I'll ask how high. And so I did. In Christchurch, the, air, the earthquake had only happened a few months before. So it was complete devastation. So I rock in, being driven by God knows who, because I have no memory of this, into a courthouse at an airbase. And I'm thinking, gosh, I might be going somewhere, flying somewhere. You know, because what the hell am I doing at an Air Force base? Anyway, I, I walk into court and apparently I said yes when the judge said, you know, do you understand you've been sectioned under the Drug and Alcohol Act of 1966 to send you to Nova Trust, who are going to help you? I have no memory. I was, I was pissed. And apparently I said yes, and then next minute, next minute, I was two years under the Drug and Alcohol Act, which meant I could not be in a premise where alcohol was served. If I was caught drinking alcohol, I could be imprisoned. Wow. What? It was the Act of 1966, and this is only 2012. Wow. And That's so, from court, I'm thinking I'm just going to go home and I'll play dad happy. And see, I go from court to a detox unit, which 
you know, uh, it was an amazing place, amazing caring staff. It was attached to a psychiatric unit, but it was a special detox unit. And I stayed there for ten days, and and you know it was a, it was a saving grace because again I was beginning to very very quickly head you know physically downhill, and then I end up on this bloody farm in the middle of nowhere, eighty acres. That all you did was pick peppers, mm-hmm. green peppers and cucumbers, and dug baby beet, and that's it. And I was sectioned there for six months. Wow. Didn't really get a time that you were going to leave. And that was my government in 2012. They changed the act in 2018. Um, yeah, and so that that was that was hell. That that stole my life. That stole my soul. That place. That's traumatic. And you didn't know when it was going to end. No. I feel like that alone is like a cruel and unusual punishment. Like the idea that this could go on forever. Like you know, that would that would. That would make me go insane. It did. It did make me go nutty. Like, I, I, I turned into somebody that I wasn't. Yeah. In the end, I ran away from there, and as people were running away, because you could drink there, no problem whatsoever. But if you're caught in the boys' wing, here I am, like forty, mid forties. You know, this is going on. You put if you're caught in the men's wing in bed with a guy, you got kicked out. But if you're caught drinking, you just got stood down from any any privileges which was like about two hours out on a Friday to do your shopping. So had people they were pissed everywhere and high everywhere. You know, it was just a chaotic 80, 80 acres of farmland of pissed people. You know, some people couldn't afford alcohol. They were growing pumpkins because apparently if a meat pumpkin has alcohol in it, other people were drinking methylated spirits. And all that was happening was this carnage was just all contained into this one place. Sweet to God, it's still running. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. So I ran, and I, I didn't think they'd come after me. And they did. They chased me for a month. Uh, got the police to chase me for a month. This is me. <laughs> this is like a little old to me. Yeah. And it's wild. And then what happened when they found you? I went to them in the end because they were hammering on the door of the only address they had for me was my really good friend who had a shitload of marijuana plants growing in her wardrobe. Uh, ah, shit. <laughs> and she had kind of a, a police record, whereas I, I have not got a police record at all. I have not done the criminal... I've got a DIC, I just didn't say I have not, but... And so they kept hammering on her door at 3am in the morning saying, we will do this every morning until you tell us where she is. And in the end, I just went... Couple of mornings later, into the Lower Hutt Police Station, the police station in Wellington, and said, You know, hi, I'm Denise. There was a bit more to it. I had appeared before the police before that, but they didn't know what to do with me. So they took me to an AE unit and locked me in there. And then the doctors went, What is she doing here? The police had gone, and everyone's going, We don't know. And I said, Can I just leave? That was two weeks prior. I'd shown up to present myself for a wellness check. And then in the end, everyone just washed their hands of me there. So I thought the same thing was going to happen here, but it didn't. So firstly, I covered my ass, so I went to a lawyer, and I went to an advocate, AOD advocate. Um, and everybody was saying, you'll be fine, they won't drag you back. So I went in and saw the police and said, you know, I'm under the AOD Act of 1966, and Section, section 8, which was voluntary, not 9, um, 
I'm here to present myself for a wellness check. And he said, well, what have you done? And I said, nothing. And he said, I'll just wait outside. I'll try, try and sort this out. And the next minute, a couple of police came out, handcuffed me, took me inside, locked me in a cell for eight hours. No lie, no lie. Then I ended up being handcuffed in a police car to the airport where another policeman met us, handcuffed onto the plane, and he, he took me down to Christchurch, like an hour's flight, handcuffed on, and he's reading my file going, what on earth is all this about? Like, what have you done that's not in your file? And I said, I've done nothing. I just left the place because I couldn't stand it one second longer. Then the police car pulls up on the tarmac of an international airport. It's, a, it's Honestly, it's stuff in movies are made out of it was a comedy. The police car turns up on the airport, on the tarmac, and I'm looking at this guy, Matt, going, what is going on? And he said, I don't know. He said, this is just... So then I was taken to another police station. And then the next morning at 9 o'clock, the CEO from Nova comes to pick me up. She goes, have you learnt your lesson, Denise? Why? For looking for a life. For looking for... I mean, what have I done? I'm an alcoholic. Like, I've done nothing. I haven't harmed anybody. I haven't hurt you. I mean, why did you just do that? And she said, because if people think you can get away with it, then they'll all try and get away with it. Fuck out of here. And I was dragged back to that place for another... What was going to be like another six to twelve month period of time? Oh my god! But I was clever. When I was away, I was hearing from a lot of people saying, "Joy said this, Joy said that," and she was talking about things to people that I know that only Joy could have said. Like she threw her toys out of the cot. Alcoholics tend to do this, you know. She wasn't happy with this and that and everything else, and I knew it could only come from her. So. When I got back there, after I waited and I used the motivational interview, which I didn't know what that was then, but I do now. And I was very nice to the office staff and I was really nice to Joy. And you know, a couple of times, I'm so sorry I put you through all of that. And I finally got an appointment with her, but not before I'd got my paperwork that said confidentiality was to be with nobody. My confidentiality agreement was to be with nobody. It was. Nobody was allowed to ask anything about me. So I'd got all that paperwork together. And then I made an appointment to go and see Joy, and I just sat there and, you know, just listened to her every word. And she said, Denise, you, you know, your ex-husband was calling every day trying to find out where you were, and I spoke to your mother, and I spoke to Karen, your friend, and we were all so worried about you, and you should have just come back. You can't do that. And I'm like, I'm so sorry, Joy, I'm so sorry. You know, how did my husband take it? He was just really annoyed. He was just really angry at my ex-husband. Take it. Okay, well, that will never happen again, and whatever I can do to make up for it, blah, blah, blah. And I walked out of that room, and I turned the recording device off. And I had her. It took about a month. I went through the Privacy Commission. Got it all sent up to them. Wow. All my confidentiality. They sent me a letter back and said... You can either go forward now with this with court, and we will take them through court, or you can just have everything on the bill and leave. She got the letter on the same day. I was already packed when she walked into my room, and it was like, 
Sometimes, how could you do that to me? <coughs> and now I've written about it. Now I've written about two chapters on that. I said, yeah, I'll get you one day. And now I have. I'm going to expose them for what they did. Not just to me, but many other people. My point about this is, I believe if you're going to go to a treatment centre, you have to be going to a good one. Because if you go to one that's not good, you will run for the hills with your substance attached to you for so long that that length of time can be critical between surviving and not surviving. So don't bother going to one that's not decent. Because it's going to push you further further down the gates of hell, really. That's crazy. Did your dad apologise for that? Did he understand they, they, all they never. I mean, I had to. I had to forgive them because they didn't know any better. I did almost get the mental health worker who suggested that I go there to begin with to my family and to my friends who had never visited the place. She was still down for work for six weeks because she also participated in, in talking about me to everybody. And it's... You know, in hindsight, what it does now is I will never step foot in Afrihan ever without clearly knowing exactly who the staff are, what their program is, and participating in it myself purely because what happened to me at Nova Trust in 2012. Wow. Yeah, nobody will go anywhere that I haven't, I wouldn't take myself. And so it's all those little lessons in life that happen to you that you've got to turn around and not hold on to because I don't. You know, I talk about Nova with, with, with staying, but I've so moved on from them. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I only talk about it now for the benefit of others to be very, very careful about where you're picking to send somebody or where you're choosing to go to yourself. Because there are people out there to just try and make money out of this, out of people's unwellness. Mm-hmm. That's a very powerful story. Yeah, and it's that's happens. Be triggered. <laughs> Worst fucking nightmare. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. I mean, I, yeah. I think uh, I think you've just got to you've got to take what is what happens to you in life, and you've got to turn around and take what lesson you can get out of it, and and, and use it where it's needed, and move forward with it. Amen. Because then I went to the most amazing place that let me find hope and belief in myself, showed me how, showed how a very complicated matter could have a very simple answer, Hmm. and that was don't pick up, (laughs) don't make excuses and don't pick up, simple, and from there onwards, things can only get better, just got to believe in yourself, you know, and love and connection, it's the keys to happiness, to everything really, yeah, doesn't matter where you are, who you are, you know, racial, diversity, whatever it is, you know, we've all got the same organs, we've all got the same brains, and we've all got the same ability to change, you know, what happens to us, to change what events have happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I believe it's really looking deep inside yourself and, and, and authentic self and finding what do you want. And then you go looking for it. What do you believe addiction is? It's a band-aid. It's a band-aid for, for wounds, is what addiction is. Do you believe that there is a genetic 
Can you be born uh, out of? I do. I do. I have a grandfather who was an alcoholic. I have two, two grandfathers. One wasn't as serious, but my other one was. I, just, I believe the genetic deposition, they say studies show about 60-70% to of genetic deposition in addiction. Um, and I believe socio-economical, you know, um, you know, portrays a lot of all of this as well. But what I do know is every single one of my clients through the hundreds of the Capri hospital and, the, and all the many that I've worked with and, and my role you know, as a navigator, every single one of them have had a second generation uh, bad, you know, example of, of addiction. You know, grandfather died, grandmother was a pill popper. You know, there was always a connection, always. Of a... Of- not their parents, but their grandparents? Always second generation, normally. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Tends to be second generation. When it's first generation, it can... This is facts. This is just... It's not so much opinion, but it can... It, it's more the factual side of it. It can be environment. If you're, if you're a person that's been raised by a, you know, a mother who was suffering from alcoholism or a, a father who was a drug addict, then you may fall into that category yourself because of your social environment that you've been raised in. It's like, oh, that's how they fixed it, so I'll just do the same thing. And then you only just have to keep pushing. People say, you know, is it a choice that you that you fall into addiction? And, and, and that's such a grey area, but to me, I didn't choose it. I didn't know what I was doing. I just wanted to have some peace. I just wanted to feel okay. And that was my biggest crime. You know, so when people come out and go, well, it's a choice, I want to slap them. And so your opinion actually doesn't fucking count because obviously you don't have a clue. Because I didn't choose yeah. when nobody, I was little. Nobody walks up like, so anybody walks up to anybody and was like, hey, do you want to be an addict? I know. Like, yeah, I'll choose that. Oh, let's have like, a go at that. See how that sounds. See how that fits my skin. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> really, it, it's... People, I view addiction as a as a band-aid to a to a, a seeping wound that you don't know how to fix. You don't know. You just want to be happy, and it just brings you some calmness until it doesn't, until it kills you. But we don't know that to start with. It's for education in the schools. Start when they're in kindergarten, for God's sake. Stop. Get them off the tablets, so they're not getting addicted to tablets. You know. Yeah. Seriously, I wonder what that's doing to like, like the brain chemistry. If that's gonna like, sort of hardwire you for this need for dopamine fixes that, yeah, might. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah it'll so be interesting yeah. to see what happens. I I see that now, and I see that through throughout my kids. My children are 35 down to 21, and then I see the difference in generations when the phones weren't around with the older ones, and, and the phones are. You know, so. It's exactly social media addiction is as damaging. In fact, it can be quicker than what a substance addiction is. Mm. Yeah, because you've got a young girl who's hasn't showed her boobs to her boyfriend, you know, or has, and it's gone around the entire school, you know, because it's all about Facebook, it's all about Instagram, it's all about Twitter and whatever else. You know, I'm I'm not big on all of them to be honest, but it's about the world is looking down. The entire world 
walks around like this because they're looking at a tablet. Nobody's looking up. Even notice it here. You know, with the, with everybody out there in the beautiful landscapes of, of Chiang Mai, and their heads down because they're looking at a phone. Yeah. yeah. Or their hands up, taking pictures of what's in front of them, yeah. rather than like actually looking at what's in front of them. They're looking at it through a telephone. I mean, it's... Or they're looking at their own face oh, vaguely at a location. The, yeah, the yeah, selfies yeah. are just unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. So they're not actually even seeing what's around them. What they're seeing is themselves with whatever the view is behind them. Yeah. And that, that's, you know, that, that's a crazy view of life. Yeah. You're looking at yourself and what's behind you that you've actually never experienced to begin with. Yeah. Uh, it's, so I see it happening more and more. And, and you know what's happening now? I don't know about the States so much as what New Zealand is, but people are talking about anxiety like it's their best friend. I've got anxiety, so I can't do that today. We talked about this so much uh, early on in our podcast of being like, it was an absolute game changer, life changer moving to Thailand and being removed from this environment of being like, yeah, like I was definitely part of that. And that I always felt like, oh, in comparison to my peers, like I got up easy. I don't have anxiety too much, but I absolutely viewed it as an identity of like, like, it it is not separatable from this that's right. Thing. Like I am a person with anxiety. Yeah. I have anxiety. Yeah. Not even I'm experiencing some anxiety today. So such and such, but just like yeah, that's a, that's a, a trait. Just like I have brown hair. I have anxiety. Yeah. It's, it's me. Yeah. And being like, and then coming here and stopped being surrounded by that narrative, mm-hmm. like not not having. I mean, I really feel like it was kind of a cultural social competition of mm-hmm. like who can be more stressed out, who can be more anxious, exactly. who can be more busy. And that this is, and then it was definitely very jarring when we went home after a year in Thailand of being like, this, these were the only conversations our friends wanted to have. Here's everything horrible and stressful that's happened to me lately. Look at how anxious I am. Look at how, what a victim I am. Isn't this impressive? And we were like, what the fuck? But yeah, like I had all of these uh, health problems from anxiety that I thought were just like, this is me. This is yeah, how I have to yeah, live. I was yeah. on heart medication at 27. Yeah. Wow, for like, wow. And yeah, coming mm-hmm. here just like went away immediately. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. I moved to the country, got mm-hmm. away from this mm-hmm. chaos. And then I'm like, I had no idea that this was mm-hmm. like a choice or something that I was mm-hmm. doing to myself, something yeah, that yeah. I'm participating. Not to say that it's like uh, maybe a hundred percent like that for everybody. Of course, there are stimuli or events where you yeah. will have a anxiety response. But to be in that permanent state of being, I absolutely believe that you make choices to to work on that in healthier ways and yeah. then or yeah. not. Yeah. Um, I, I totally, totally agree with you. You know, the, it's the, there's a difference between anxiety and being scared or, or, or being afraid to challenge yourself. Without a doubt, anxiety, and I had that. I had chronic anxiety to the point that I didn't know I had anxiety. What happened was I was having massive panic attacks. Same here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't believe I had anxiety. Yeah. I didn't believe I was stressed out, but yeah. I was having such severe panic yeah. attacks. They and thought you had a heart attack. Yeah. You know? I ended up in the hospital like four times when I was 25. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. You know, it, it is. It's like... You, it is such a real thing, you know, the, the closing in, you know, in the supermarket, for me it was a supermarket, and it was oh, on the yeah. highway, you know, just, supermarkets. they say supermarkets actually are the risk, because you're kind of entrapped with a trolley full of stuff, yes. but, um, so I didn't know what anxiety was, and, and we're talking 
2006, seven that all started turning to shit for me. Um, but what I'm hearing now, and I, I don't want to be little or berate that, but what I see is a whole generation of people out there talking about their best mate anxiety. Yeah. Because they're too scared, or they haven't been taught how to connect with somebody, to do something, to go somewhere, to be something, because they've learned everything through their phones, yeah. through what, what their phones are telling them. And so they've lost connection. They've lost human touch connection. So they get anxious, which is a big difference from anxiety. Anxious, you know, we naturally have got to be anxious because we've got to be aware that there's probably a car through our peripheral vision, there could be a car coming the wrong way towards us. Yeah. So anxiety is part of our makeup for our survival, a very small portion of it, until you make it your best friend and then it controls your life. Yeah, and I feel like with the phone, the most, the main thing is that nobody has practice at being uncomfortable. Yeah, that's completely right. Completely right. Being uncomfortable is uncomfortable, but you get you, you need to be practiced. You need to practice at that. Yeah. So right. Change happens when you're uncomfortable. <laughs> it will. It tends to. <laughs> Because you avoid, you know, you find ways to get comfortable with uncomfortable, you know. Yeah, um, exactly. I, I found in sobriety, you know, some some amazing, amazing gifts. In fact, right now is one of my favourite times. Is a, is a break of day and the and the, and the end of day, when when dusk's going down and, and the the absolute beauty of nature, you know. And I'm not a greenie, you know, but I just think, God, we live in an incredible universe that. Just, <laughs> We get gifted this ever-changing view every day, and half the world forgets to look at it. Yeah. You know, every morning as that sun's coming up, who would miss that? You know, not me. I'm up at like five a.m. because I, if I miss the sunrise, I'm kind of pissed off about it. Oh. Mm. It's it's a weird thing, you know, and and but that's my probably higher power if you want to ever use the word, but that that's. That's part of what I feel I'm very lucky to have now because I came so close to death's door with with what with addiction. Um, but I've never had a panic attack um, after about five six months of sobriety. So yeah, six and a half years now, I've never suffered one, mm-hmm. and it debilitated me. I would actually drink. That's when it started to get worse. I would drink before I go to the supermarket because I was so shit scared of having a panic attack in the supermarket. Um, and that's where I began to really start relying on alcohol. And I still didn't know I had anxiety. I still didn't know that's what it was. And um, so, you know, that that is that that's just your gateway for me. But I know how to sit still now. I know how to sit. I know how to just be still and know which is one of my favourite sayings, you know, just be still and know that everything is actually going to be okay. And if you can just sit with that, um, no matter what the situation is and where you are and what's happening to you, if you can just have faith that you know that everything will be okay, then you'll be okay. Before we move on to the regular question section, is there anything else you'd like to say in this realm of things, messages you'd like to share? You don't have to. Just well, um, no, 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 um, no, I think I've probably said, said enough. Um, 
my little bits and pieces. I don't refer to myself as an alcoholic because I, I think the word's an absolute disgraceful labelling of, of what it is. And although I am an alcoholic and, you know, alcoholism was part, a very big part of my life, it doesn't define me, but it certainly made me who I am today and I am grateful for that. So I am a gratefully, gratefully retired connoisseur of fine wines. <laughs> That's a good, I like that label. I like yeah, that. I'm not an alcoholic. I, I will admit to it when I have to, when it's necessary, but that's me. And you, do, you don't have to carry this label, no matter what, mental health or, or addiction. You don't have to carry, carry a label with you. It's not, not necessary. Yeah. Very wise Yeah, I always get really frustrated when people refer to themselves as, like, junkies. Yeah. And it's just like, you're, you're calling yourself trash. Yeah. That's, who, that's how you're defining who you are. Yeah. Don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> There's no need to label, but sometimes they don't know what any other identity is. And they've got so used to being told that that's what they are and that's what they become. You know, and that's not humans. That's not, that's not how human, us as humans should be. Um, yeah, everybody, everybody's got more to them than, than what an illness has given them. You don't get cancer and you walk around for the rest of your life going, well, I'm a breast cancer survivor. So why should you walk around for the rest of your life saying, I'm an alcoholic? Yeah. Please. Definitely. No. But that's, that's for everybody's own journey to discover that. Um, yes, it defines, you know, it was part of my life. And I, and I think, what would my life have been if that didn't happen, I don't know what it has given me. Is it just, it's given me, you know, at 50 years old, I had to discover who Denise was. You know, and I'm not fluff, even though I believe in fluff and I love fluff, but I tend to be quite practical rather than fluffy. And, you know, the greatest gift I've, I've ever been given is, is they had to stop the world, get off, and find out who Denise was find out what made me and find out who I was truly destined to be, you know, in my bones. You know, who was Denise meant to be in this world? Why was she meant to be here? I know what I feel. I know what I'm comfortable and not comfortable with. Let's discover how to, to really utilise that. Be honest and say you get uncomfortable around this situation. And I hate asking people for money. I will do everything in the world to not ask people for money if they owe me, you know, for, for maybe an intervention that I did and things like that. I, I would just actually go forward rather than ask people. But that's me and I, I know that's me and I accept that's me. So other than finding other ways around it, it's just what it is. And, and that's a good thing, to, that's a good feeling to know that. Mm-hmm. That little things that make me me, I'm at peace with, you know. And I had to discover that through alcoholism. Well, any uh, final words of wisdom or things you'd like to tell people to do or check out? Well, check out my book when it comes out. <laughs> what, do you have a title? Um, I do. It's called Poured Me a Glass of Life. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah. It's one woman's journey of choosing life over the bottle. So, yeah, Poured Me a Glass of Life. I've got an Instagram um, which has always been that um, and I've got videos that I put out on my website which have always been that as well and so just naturally the book felt 
the accidental book that I've written felt like that should be called the same thing. And, it, and it's what it's about. It's about pouring myself a glass of, of life. So you have to be out and uh, on Amazon and everything by the end of November um, in print in Amazon early December. Yeah, nice. That's yeah. so exciting. Excellent. It is, and I've just landed uh, a corporate funder who's going to pay for a run of 4,000 books. Wow. Ah, awesome. Congratulations. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, just, I'm just, I'm still floored by it, and I just don't quite know. <laughs> yeah, somebody really important in my life, and, and he's been very successful in business, but has always really believed in me, and, and believes that he knows my story, and he believes it can help people, by others reading it. Um, and so he wants to fund it. He wants to make sure it really gets into into bookstores and self-publishing because I want control of it. Um, and so he's just given birth to it. Really, I, I would have had it printed, and it will go to Amazon, and it will be an ebook because I'll make that happen, and I will fund it. But he's just made it easy. Uh, yeah, that's he's just made it actually really possible. Huh? So they don't have to mortgage a house to do it. You know, self-publishing. Because it carries a message, a really good, strong message that no matter what happens to you in your life, you, you have, if you can just believe you can, mm-hmm. you've got every possibility of turning you know, everything towards the direction you should be going in, not the direction you're in. You know? mm-hmm. And then that's what the message is. We look forward to reading Thank the book. Thank you so much for having me here. Yeah, Thank so you. It's been our pleasure. Messaging me. This is wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm hopefully I'm going to catch up and have coffee and stuff. This doesn't have to be the end. Yes. Of course not. It's a pleasure meeting you both. Likewise. Like-minded people. I, and I love what you're doing. I think I'm going to listen to you. I, I highly recommend it. I think it's a great podcast. I love the name. The name is so catchy. <laughs> Thank you. Just wait till you hear our theme song. Oh, really? Talk about catchy. Yeah. <laughs>